So uh, we're turning uh, to Joshua chapter 10 uh, in this section 16 to 29. Uh, I know some of you are visiting with us this morning. It's great to have you with us. And uh, but perhaps this seems a rather unusual passage to dive into. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you will recall that we picked up on a series of studies that we had started in Joshua over a year ago. And last week, as a refresher, we spent some time considering the opening section of chapter 10 together. We were reminded how God had promised the land of Canaan to Israel. Back in Genesis chapter 15, he had promised it to Abraham. But he had delayed allowing them to occupy the land for 400 years. And during this time... It was the Amorites who had been living there in the promised land. And although they'd heard of God's uh, miraculous deeds, they knew all about God. They had generally carried on their lives with no thought for the Lord. And for 400 years, they had pursued a life contrary to God's will. And indeed, When the Lord spoke to Abraham, he explained that delay of 400 years by saying that only at the end of that time would the sin of the Amorites be full and complete. Faced with first-hand demonstrations of God's power, they continued to resist him. They heard of how the Israelites had been brought miraculously out of Egypt and they had seen how the Lord had brought them through the River Jordan on the dry land. And yet still, they set their hearts against him. I say generally, because there were exceptions. For example, Rahab, who we read of last year, and her family among the population of Jericho. She believed. The city had resolutely barred its gates against God, and yet Rahab was the exception. She repented and turned to the Lord in faith. She looked to him to be saved. So to the population of Gibeon, who uh, we'd uh, looked at perhaps around last February, in February, they, they made their peace with God, and they entered into a treaty with Joshua. And although their motives may have been mixed initially, they too cast themselves on God's mercy. Because in Joshua 9.25 we read them say, Here we are in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. They didn't claim any rights. They cast themselves upon God's mercy. So you see, both Rahab and the people of Gibeon came to the point at which they recognized that the game was up. They had nothing to commend themselves before God. All they could do was seek forgiveness from him for their sin and rebellion. Well, we read earlier, didn't we, that well-known passage from John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that was as true for Rahab 
and the Gibeonites as it is for us, isn't it? And that's what happened. Rahab believed in God and she was preserved. When when the walls of Jericho came down and the city was destroyed, she was preserved. So to the Gibeonites, they believed and they looked to God for salvation. And indeed, in that, they were not disappointed. What we saw last week, that as they began to exercise their new faith, the Gibeonites found that there was a radical change in their lives. They'd moved from one kingdom into another. Paul describes it in the book as having been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the sun. And with that change, with that shifting kingdom, came changes in relationships. Former allies became enemies. Former friends had become foes. Their former neighbours, led by King Adonai Zedek, were joined by four other kings. So there were five kings, and together they led their armies into battle against the Gibeonites. But along with their new enemies, as we saw last week, the Gibeonites acquired new friends. And the Israelites fought to protect them. But not only that, we saw last week, didn't we, that Joshua himself interceded for them. Joshua prayed, and Joshua's prayers were answered in the most dramatic way. And as a consequence, the five kings, the armies of the five kings were routed. At Joshua's intervention then, the sun and the moon paused in their normal path. And many of the armies of the five kings perished, not under the sword of the Israelites, but as a direct result of divine intervention as uh, uh, hailstones poured down upon the armies of those five kings. Well, that brings us, doesn't it, to the, this morning's passage. And we'll look at it under three headings, the cave, the tree, and the victory. The cave, the tree, and the victory. Let's look that first then at the cave. And we read of that in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. In a few short verses, you see, the situation was very different for King Adonai Zedek. In the course of just one day, a miraculously extended day, these five kings found that their circumstances had changed very dramatically. Rather than having the upper hand with overwhelming odds, their armies had been routed. Reports that they'd heard of Israel's God had now been confirmed by evidence that they'd seen with their own eyes. The Lord is indeed a mighty God, a God who controls the sun and the moon in the sky, one who does wonders as he had done when he separated the waters of the Red Sea and separate, held back the waters of the Jordan. This Lord was indeed one who prosecutes justice and punishes sin. 
They had seen this with their own eyes. But they'd also seen a God who had shown mercy to the Gibeonites when they turned to him. They'd seen a God who had welcomed them and taken them to the heart of his community. I wonder what you would have done if you were one of the five kings who had uh, railed against Gibeon. Well, we read that having seen all this, they hide away, hoping not to face the reality as what had been revealed to them. In some ways it's amazing, isn't it? They don't rally their troops for a last stand. Neither do they follow the example of the Gibeonites to try to make peace with this God. But no, faced with the evidence in front of them, what do they do? They hide in the cave at Makeda. And although that might seem strange to you, think back to that passage we read in John chapter 3. Read on in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It's John's Gospel. John, the Apostle John tells us that a, a cosmic event has happened. The world, the Word has become flesh. Christ has come into the world and we, we see Him. We see one who is literally out of this world. And Jesus tells us that if we've seen Him, we've seen the Father. God, you see, we're, we're told that God has revealed Himself to mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. What then do we see? We see a God who is infinite in his glory and his perfection. The whole of human language is incapable of describing him. For everything was made by him and for him. We see a God who is perfectly holy and pure, who is the absolute essence of goodness. And it was we sang in our first psalm, his glory and his renown is above even the whole of creation. Were we to use the whole of the universe in comparison, we would never be able to put God into scale or perspective. He's immense. He's infinite in size. He's eternal in time. Is incomprehensible to our human minds. But John tells us that the glory of Christ is like a bright, is a bright, dazzling, blinding light. A light which reveals everything for what truly is. The truth is there to be seen in the light and nothing is hidden from the Lord's omnipotent gaze. And so in the grime of our sin and the shame of who we are, what is our natural reaction when the light is switched on? 
John tells us that we run, we hide from the light, we head from the shadows. Our immediate response is to hide. And it was true of Adam and Eve, wasn't it, in the Garden of Eden? They first disobeyed God, and what was their reaction? They went to hide. They chose to cower in the shadows of the foliage than to be in the presence of the Lord who was walking in the garden. To these five kings loved the darkness of the cave rather than the presence of Israel's God. John says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The kings, you see, had seen events unfold which were immense and beyond their comprehension. They'd begun to realize, like Rahab and the Gibeonites, that the God of Israel was indeed the one with whom they had to do. They began to realize that this God was one to whom they were answerable. And so as the reality of this began to dawn on them, they ran for cover. What about us? God has revealed himself to us through his son. Christ has come into the world. The scriptures tell us of someone who is beyond human comprehension. The scriptures record words and events and signs which reveal who Jesus is. They reveal Jesus who cannot be dismissed. The light has been switched on. What are we going to do? Do we come to the light or do we hide? Don't answer that too quickly. Even if you're here in church this morning, caves, hiding places can be made of many things. Think about what your life will look like later today. This afternoon, this evening, what does it look like in the rest of the week? Can we find a cave away from the light in the busyness of our lives? Do we hide away in caves formed from the pursuit of our careers or the indulgence of time with our families? Rather than wanting to spend time in the light of Christ, you prefer spending time with friends who keep us in the company of the shadows? Or do you prefer the company of those who bring the light of the gospel into our lives? The scriptures encourage us, don't they, to examine ourselves, to take a few minutes to reflect on God's truth. Do you have an inkling of the God with whom you have to do? And if so, What will you do? Do you turn to him for forgiveness like Rahab and the Gibeonites? Or do we run and hide, filling our lives with other things, making a cave which subconsciously we hope will hide us from the gaze of our God? Well, that was the cave. We turn now to the tree. 
Those of you who were here with us last week will remember that at one point we considered how Joshua is what we call a type of Christ. And by a type we mean a picture or a shadow. And indeed it's interesting that in, in this case their names mean the same. Moses gave Joshua his name, to, which means the Lord saves in Hebrew. While in Matthew 1.20 read, an angel appearing to Joseph before Christ was born, telling him to call the expected son Jesus, the Lord saves, because he would save his people from their sins. So when we read the book of Joshua, there are occasions when Joshua is a picture a type, a shadow of Jesus. So you remember that when God speaks to the Israelites through Joshua, this is a shadow or a type of how God reveals himself to us through Jesus. When Joshua leads the Israelites through their battles, this is a shadow or a type of how Jesus leads his church. And last week we saw how Joshua's prayer was a type pointing us to Jesus' ongoing work now in praying for his people. Well, here in these verses this morning, we see Joshua as another type or shadow of Christ. This time we don't find Joshua praying for the preservation of his people, but we find him executing judgment. For the five kings cannot hide in the cave forever. In verse 21 we read, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. See, although they tried to avoid Israel's God, eventually they could avoid him no longer. Although they tried to hide from Joshua, eventually they were brought out before him into the sunlight. And as they were brought before Joshua, the shadow or type, so too we all one day will have to come out before our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our judge. As much as they tried to avoid it, at last They had to come out into the light. And in the words of John, their deeds are exposed. And then God's justice is executed through Joshua, as we read of it in verses 26 and 27. Afterwards, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and, commanded, and they took down from the trees, took them down from the trees, and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. To appreciate the nuance of this scene, we need to look back into the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and the 22nd and 23rd verses. For there we see the command given to Moses. And it says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. See, when Joshua hangs the bodies of the five kings on the five trees, he's not making an example of them to put fear into any remaining resistance. Neither did he hang the corpses on the trees to spur his troops on for the remaining battle. By this act, Joshua was not only complying with the command of God, but he was making a declaration about the five kings. Hear it in the verse. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Joshua's action tells us that the five kings had not been beaten by Joshua. Joshua's action tells us that the five kings had been punished and cursed by God himself. The prophet Nahum gives a hint of what this looks like in Nahum 1-2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The God is avenging and wrathful. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and rocks are broken in pieces by him. Subject of the, the wrath of God, punishment by God, is a difficult one, isn't it? And it's not a popular one either. But these words are very even. God does not lash out in a violent reaction, for Nahum describes God as being slow to anger against sin. But God's justice is certain, for Nahum also tells us that he will by no means clear the guilty. And indeed, if you think about it, it would be a fearful thing if we had to deal with an unpredictable God, a God who we had no idea how he would react. But God is just that. He is God. As God, he has every right to be obeyed. As God, he has every right to be respected and worshipped That's what it means to be divine. And for those who offend that right, they justly face a God who is not unpredictable, but one who we are told keeps wrath for his enemies. And the wrath is described in dramatic terms here, isn't it, by Nahum? He says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. This then is what the five kings faced. They had been rebellious. They had denied giving God what he was due. And so they faced his indignation. And his wrath was poured out on them like fire. But that's not all. 
For there is another aspect to the curse which is proclaimed as these bodies of the five kings hang on the tree. In Deuteronomy 31.17 we see that God's anger is for those who set their hearts against him. And we read this. Then says God, my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured. God's justice then is active, an outpouring of punishment. But it's also passive. For we're told here that God will turn his face away from them. The five kings hid in the cave because they did not want to face God. But we should be careful what we wish for, shouldn't we? For in receiving their punishment, in one sense, they obtained what they wanted, what they asked for. For God's face was hidden from them. God had forsaken them. And with the hiding of God's face, with his face being turned away, they lost any hope of comfort and joy. As God's face was turned away from them, so too was every source of light and love and blessing. But if that's the tree, we need to look at the victory. Let's read verse 24. When they brought out those king, that when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who'd gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and they put their feet on the necks. You know, when you throw a stone, into the pond, a pond, waves are created. Ripples move out from the point in the centre. And those ripples tell you that you're not look, just looking at a wave which is passing, but the, way, the ripples tell you that something of significance has happened. The stone has been thrown into the pond. Well, what's true in a, in a pond is also true in the Bible. But in the case of the Bible, the ripples can precede the event rather than just pointing back to an event which has already taken place. Well, this verse here, in verse 24, is one such point in the Bible. Joshua, the type or shadow of Jesus, places his foot, as it were, through the army leaders onto the necks of the five kings. Does that ring any bells to you? Can you think of any other ripples in the Bible that speak of a similar thing? Remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, after Adam and Eve had fallen, God says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And then in Psalm 91, verse 13, we read, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. These are the two animals, aren't they, that we find in the Bible used to describe the devil, the serpent or snake, and the lion. Because Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So these two verses, if you like, are ripples anticipating, looking forward to a a central event which was to come when Christ defeated Satan on the cross. At that point, the devil was trampled under the foot of our Saviour. Jesus, the one whose name means the Lord saves, does just that by defeating death itself. So to Joshua, whose name also means the Lord saves, here points us to this same central event. Joshua's instruction was for his men of war to place their feet on the necks of the five kings. Now that might have been a sign that the battle was won, but it's much more than that, isn't it? Joshua's foot representatively placed on the neck of the defeated kings is yet another type of Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua here points us to Jesus accomplishing his victory on the cross. In Hebrews 2.14 we're told, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. The victory, then, of Joshua points forward to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't forget that Jesus also accomplished his victory in a manner which was foreshadowed there at the cave at Makeda. The verse in Hebrews reminds us that in order to achieve his victory, the Lord Jesus Christ had to partake of flesh and blood. He had to take on human flesh. The verse in Hebrews reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished his victory through death. His victory was accomplished by our Joshua, the Lord Jesus, being hung from a tree, the cross, rather than the five kings. Friends, our victory was accomplished by a curse being placed not on the five kings, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on those who had set their hearts against God, but on one who was the Son of God. His victory was achieved when the Lord Jesus Christ cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His victory was achieved when darkness was all around and the Lord Jesus Christ experienced something of the face of God 
being turned away from him. His victory was achieved in the supreme and only source of comfort and joy and light and love that has ever existed within the Godhead was in some measure interrupted. Friends, we we are created finite human beings. We will never be able to fathom what it was like for the Lord Jesus to experience the face of God being turned away. And we do need to tread incredibly carefully. Rather than me speculating, hear the words of Thomas Watson, a Puritan. Christ suffered a double eclipse on the cross. An eclipse of the sun, in the light, and an eclipse of the light of God's countenance. How bitter was the agony. Like what Puritan John Flavel says this, Christ's complaint is not of the cruel, cruel tortures that he felt in his body, nor of the scoffs or reproaches of his name. He doesn't mention a word of these, for they are all swallowed up in the sufferings within, as a river is swallowed up into the sea. He seems to neglect all of these physical complaints and only complains of what was more burdensome than 10,000 crosses, even his father's deserting him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a more inward trouble that, that burdens him. Darkness upon his spirit. The hiding of God's face from him. An affliction he was totally a stranger to until now. Friends, Joshua's victory points us to a greater victory the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But it was a victory purchased at an inestimable price. But there's an epilogue to these events, isn't there? The verses after our passage in Joshua this morning go on to account how Joshua takes the various various cities of the promised land. And eventually, we read, we reach Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. It's on your sheet. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So you see, Joshua's victory brought a curse to some. Having tried in vain to run away from God, the five kings experienced his wrath for their rebellion. After their futile effort to hide from God, they had to face the awful reality of God's face being turned away from them. Friends, that's a somber thought and worth pondering on. Friends, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, don't we have a great encouragement? Because for those 
who trusted in the Lord, his face wasn't turned away. For Joshua and the Israelites and Rahab and the Gibeonites who had looked to God in faith. His face continued to look upon them. The source of all comfort and joy continued to gaze on them. And we read here that they rested from war, that they had peace. And that comfort and joy and light and peace may be ours if we believe. But it's ours because it has been secured by the Lord Jesus. It's been secured by the one from whom the Father's face was turned away. And all because of Christ's and the Father's great love for his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder, all through your dealings with man, that you have had a great plan of salvation, a a covenant made between the Father and the Son, that the Son would indeed go to the cross to purchase his people for himself. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the tree, that he was cursed, that in some way which we can never comprehend, the Father's face was turned away from him. But Lord, we bless you that because of that, we may know your gaze upon us, and we thank you for it.